1: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today welcome to the new books
2: network welcome to the new books in anthropology channel on the new books network my name is Jolyn, and i'm your host for this podcast i'm here with bianette castellanos to discuss her new book Indigenous Dispossession, Housing, and Maya Indebtedness in Mexico, published by Stanford University Press in October 2021. Thank you, Bianette, for joining me to discuss your book.
0: Thank you for inviting me, Jolan.
2: I would like to start our conversation by asking a bit about you. How did you become interested in Maya experiences with housing in Mexico, and what does this book mean for you?
0: I um I've spent 30 years working with my communities in Mexico. I first began working with them in when I was an undergraduate student. I was awarded a Europe grant, an undergraduate research opportunities grant, to spend time doing fieldwork in Yucatan. And one of my uh, professors, uh, James Fox, uh, suggested that I um, uh, spend time working this in this small community called, which I, it's called Kuchmil but that's a pseudonym. I actually don't share the actual name of the community to protect their um, um, the, the the communities that I work the families that I work with, and so I sta- I travel to this community and initially I was going to work um, with uh, the young girls. I was interested in lo- looking at changing marriage practices. I was inspired by Margaret Mead's work, and I was also um, constricted by my own um, age and gender. You know, I was told that as I was I think nineteen or twenty at the time. And so um, I was told that I wouldn't be able to have access to particular social circles, right. That I would be expected to spend all my time with the young women. So I decided to focus on that, on that work. And, um, and I spent the summer working with these young girls. And then the following summer, uh, most of the young girls had left. They had migrated out of their community. And I arrived in this community a year after the first road, the paved road had been built. So it, that road made it possible for people to leave because now all of a sudden there was a bus system that would come in through the community. Before that, in order to leave the community, you had to go by bicycle, by bus or by, by like truck because it, the roads just were, were difficult to traverse. Um, and so I decided to follow these girls to um, the cities that they had traveled to find work. And so that ended up, you know, I've spent the last you know, three decades studying this, these migration patterns. And thinking about what it means for Maya peoples to leave um, their communities and to find work in the tourism industry. Um, this is my time in in Yucatan has also occurred during the time when Cancun has expanded. It's become this international resort, um, and so I was really interested in also thinking about the relationship between Maya migration and the development of Cancun as a tourist center, and also the development of Cancun um, as a you know from because it's also gone from a small tourist center to a major city, to a metropolitan city. So I was also interested in that evolution. And that's where the, the, the idea for this book emerged. So because I had studied my migration to Cancun for so many years, the people that I was working with ended up staying in Cancun and working in Cancun. And so the issue of affordable housing was a constant concern. People could not find uh, a place to live. Rent was cost about the same amount as it cost, you know, as they were earning in wages. And so um, the idea, of, uh, so community, the people that I worked with were really concerned about if they couldn't find affordable rental housing, then maybe they could find land that they could purchase to then build a house on the land. And so, so then I ended up learning a, about um, the Cancun's housing and land policies. And the community itself urged me to make inquiries on their behalf because I had access to government officials um, to ask them about, um, you know, how could they could actually gain access to land. And so, so that's sort of where this, the idea for this project emerged. I was really interested in think, in helping the community figure out ways to get access to land. And during that time period when I started making these inquiries, which is around two, the 2000, 2001, I also noticed that there was a shift. Um, the local housing, the local policies around land were initially that the government would redistribute land to working class uh, migrants. But then around this time period, there was a shift where the government ended land redistribution policies. And so the opportunities for people to access land, to gain access to land was very limited. And so now all of a sudden what the government did was they started to support the, bil- the building of um, tract housing developments that were affordable but not quite, right? they were somewhat affordable. And so um, they, were, they really pushed for uh, local people to actually buy these homes. And so then that sort of became part of this project is thinking about, well, are these homes um, you know, affordable? What, what does it mean to buy a home because then you actually go into debt to, to, because you have to get a mortgage. And so, you know, how, so there was the community that I was working with is very critical of this process because they were averse to going into debt. They had experienced the history of debt servitude when um, in their family, through their history with their experiences with haciendas, with plantations, economies. And so they were very hesitant to, to make that move. And so over the span of five, four or five years, I noticed that initially when they were hesitant, then by, 2005, they were all jumping into purchasing these types of homes. And so I was really interested in that shift and that shift from, you know, seeking land to then moving into buying a house and thinking about what that transition meant in terms of Mexico's, um, you know, booming housing economy, but also in terms of the relationship to the Great Recession and the housing bubble in the U.S. and thinking about housing bubbles in Mexico, but also thinking about shifting property regimes and the ways that governments um, use land or houses to create docile citizens, to create, um, you know, to to also manage populations. So that's that's sort of where the project emerged. So this project is very um, important for me because it, w- it gave me an opportunity to actually write a book that was at the behest of my interlocutors. I did not write this book um, because this was like my first book was an outcome of my dissertation work. Um, uh, and, it, and this book was really in response to people's needs and um, and urgent, um, you know, uh, uh, housing situations. And so so for me, it was really important to write a book that sort of drew upon all these issues around policies, because, you know, this has, you know, it's a book that's meant to have policy implications. It's not a book that's, um, that's meant to focus primarily on theory. Um, And so, so that's part of the reason why I also include a lot of people's personal stories, because it's, I think, one of the challenges of writing a book that has policy implications is to be able to understand how these policies that get instituted by governments or by, um, you know, local ordinances or things like that, urban planners, you know, what their real life effects are on people. And, and so that was part of the reason why this book is really important to me and and to the people that I work with, because it really is addressing, um, an you know, important issues that, that they're tackling with on a daily basis and will continue to tackle with, um, these issues around affordable housing are not going to go away. Um, they're going to continue to plague, um, you know, the ability for Cancun to house uh, people, my new incoming migrants to house its current residents and then also to grow um, in the future. And and it's going to impact the way that they they expand. Right. And so so that's part of um, or the way the city expands. So that's part of the reason why this book is a special place for me, because it's, it, it had a very different vision in the way that I um, I put it together. And part of that, you can see that in the way I organized the book is organized for people to understand um, how these uh, policies shifted. And and I talk about property regimes because I really see that prior to 2000, the ways that um, governments were involved with providing housing was rooted around a particular understanding of land as, you know, their their mission was to redistribute land to people. And so when you have... um, housing policies organized around land redistribution, then what you see happening is very different from when you have housing policies organized around um, markets, financial markets, where, you know, uh, where you have mortgages and, you know, as, um, as sort of the fundamental underpinning of sort of how housing policy happens, right? So if you're building houses that you're going to sell and people have to get a mortgage to get access to that housing, that's very different from being being given land right because the land the way that the government gave land in the past it was affordable um the land was given at affordable prices whereas the more the mortgages are regulated by markets so it's a very different kind of process i was really interested in that kind of transition because it was a pivot away from a particular understanding about the relationship and the obligation that governments had to its people um to this new approach and neoliberal approach about the individual individualization of debt and um, that and the government was basically uh, putting that on individuals and not um, becoming as involved or as feeling as responsible for having having to create policies that support or uh, uh, subsidize these kinds of projects. Right. So so they're well, they're still subsidizing housing, but they're not necessarily subsidizing mortgages. Right. So thinking about that, a lot of that, the the impetus or the responsibility for for housing falls on the individual Um, in comparison with in the past, where the government was heavily involved with land distribution and making it an affordable practice.
2: Right. And you mentioned that Cancun, the city, it was developed. um, By way of some historical context, context, can you sketch for us a picture of what was happening in Cancun in the second half of the 20th century and how this history bears on your research.
0: Yeah. So Cancun, um, in, in the 1960s, Cancun was a small fishing village um, until the Mexican government decided that they were really interested in um, developing tourist centers throughout the country as a way to capture foreign exchange. Uh, this uh, interest was an outcome of the fact that the Bracero Program um, the Mexican government had been involved with sending guest workers, braceros, to the United States to work from 1942 to 1964. The Bracero program ended in 1964. And so as a result, the government was trying to figure out ways to generate new kinds of jobs for braceros who were returning back to, to Mexico. And also um, thinking about ways to buttress its own you know, uh, e- economy. And so they thought that tourism was an ideal way to do that. They had seen other countries like in Spain and Morocco, that they had seen these countries create these robust tourist economies. And so um, they traveled around the country looking for a place where they could create uh, what they considered to be a tourist center or tourist pole. And they they visited the Yucatan Peninsula and decided that Cancun would be the perfect place because they deemed it or they considered to be what's called vacant land. And they felt that because it was vacant, then they could build whatever they wanted there. And um, so they imagined that they would create this metropolitan city where they would attract a half a million settlers, um, and they would develop this, you know, amazing tourist center. And it would generate, uh, you know, a great, uh, a great income for the country, right? And so, so that was the vision of Cancun was to to create this international tourist center. That would generate a lot of income for the country, and so, and and that's what they ended up producing. This city, but in the process of of imagining this city, of um, what they did is that they actually then um, erased uh, the history of indigenous peoples in this place. They um, ended up, you know, claiming that this was a new place. They claimed that there were no Maya people here; that it was just a city of immigrants. And so then they didn't feel that they had to actually um, Address any of the issues that resulted from the expropriation of these lands from Maya communities. And so that they could then go ahead and build this tourist center. And when they actually planned the center, they planned the center um, to have, you know, this tourist zone where you had the hotel zone. They planned it to have a, com- uh, a downtown um, and uh, uh, housing around. The downtown for the middle class, or the or the people who actually would staff the downtown, and would, but they didn't actually plan for the workers, so there was no housing created for workers. So when they started building the hotels in the late 1960s, um, they recruited Maya workers from a, a, the surrounding countryside, and these people had to show up and basically camp in the jungle because there was no place for them to really live. And so what you ended up having was that the city itself was surrounded by squatter settlements. And so eventually these squatter settlements became incorporated into the city itself. But, you know, this is a process that took a long time. Um, but all of this happened, um, you know, it, it took a long time to incorporate the, the, the squatter settlements, but at the same time it was, it happened very quickly. So you went from a small fishing community to a city of, you know, um, now there's close to a million settlers, uh, residents, right, settlers in this in the city um, within a span of 50 years. And so a city that's built that quickly uh, can't possibly address all the needs of its residents or um, create the infrastructure, you know, um, in a planned way or in a, in a way that's going to actually uh, make it possible for people to live you know, to live well, right? And so because a lot of that growth was haphazard, um, you know, they incorporated shanty and towns as they were built. And so then, you know, people built their homes and then they would build schools and they would build roads and they would build electricity, you know, lines to connect all these um, communities to the electrical grid. And so, so it was kind of haphazard planning for working class residents. The planning for the middle class residents, that was done uh, strategically and thoughtfully. But for the people who came later, that that was all done, you know, as people arrived. And so that so so when you think about the city itself and you look at the way it's grown, you can see that um, that there's the the kind of care that was given to the hotel zone and to the downtown is it's uh, they're trying to they don't have the funds to be able to do that, to build with the same kind of care um, for the outskirts of the city
2: you you touch there on the fact that indigenous migrants are sometimes considered settlers or colonos by various actors mm-hmm. uh, and you discuss that in the book however you make a point of not framing maya people as settlers why is that and how does your approach here help us understand what's going on in and around cancun mm-hmm.
0: Well, the goal of the city was to to bring in settlers, right? And so so the local government um, uh, considers the residents to be settlers. But Maya peoples, because this is their traditional homelands, while they may have left their local community to migrate to Cancun, to work in Cancun, they are still um, living on traditional homelands, you know, and so, so for them, they still have a particular relationship to this land. Um, they see. They talk about how um, the land, they're, the, these, they're connected to the land, you know, through the cosmos. are connected to the land through their relationship to um, to the, the the local ecology. And so, so this idea of of of, uh, of Cancun as a city of immigrant, of like, of like what like a city of immigrants or even migrants, then negates that history, that relationship the Maya peoples have to local ecologies to, um, and, and, to, and also the, the kinds of cultural practices that they continue to foster and promote in Cancun. Uh, so the city uh, is seen as this cosmopolitan city, and that's the image that it's trying to, pr- to cr- produce, that it's, but at the same time, they uh, uh, you see lots of hints and references to Maya traditions and customs. But those are, are, are what, what they sell is that they sell Maya culture to generate, ink, you know, to consumers because it's attractive, but they don't have the same kind of investment in Maya peoples um, that would, you would assume because they're elevating Maya culture as a tourist attraction. But the people themselves do not receive, receive that. They don't have the same kind of, um, they don't receive any benefits from that kind of, of, of consumption, Right. And so and they actually aren't being um, their traditions and their practices are not uh, recognized in the city because the way that the Mexican government has structured its relationship to Maya pueblos in the in the peninsula is that Maya pueblos have autonomy and they have rights when they're um, in within their pueblos, which are in the countryside. When Maya migrants move to the city, they're not recognized as indigenous peoples. They're not given rights. So when when uh, in Kuchimil, they have the community has rights. Um, they have they have a particular relationship with the government. They can make requests. They can make demands for certain kinds of resources because they are an indigenous pueblo. But when they migrate to the city, they're not recognized as an indigenous pueblo. So they actually can't make those claims on local governments. And so that's part of the reason why I ref- I pushed back against the idea of being, of calling them settlers, because um, it then doesn't account for the relationship that they have with their traditional homelands. It doesn't account for the obligations that governments have to indigenous pueblos. Um, and so that's part of the reason why I do that. And I'm hoping that it'll foster um, conversation around, like, who is a settler and why we even talk about, you know, why why we need to talk about settlers versus migrants? Why we need to talk about? I talk about how they're positioned as settlers, and how that that conversation around thinking about how people get positions as settlers opens up new opportunities for, to having conversations about what um, what are the needs of Indigenous peoples when they are in cities, when they you know when they when they, when they live in cities.
2: In chapter one, you talk about Naidas process. In acquiring housing, and can you explain why you decided to highlight her experience, uh, and walk us through how that went for her?
0: Yeah, chapter one is looks at um, Cancun's housing policies prior to the shift from away from land distribution to um, housing policies oriented around mortgages. And so I highlight Nereida's story because Nereida was able to um, uh, get land uh, through the uh, Cancun's land redistribution policy. And so she was able to acquire a plot of land. And so I was really, so her her process of going through and getting that land is particular for that moment, but it also shows you how radically different it is um, from the kinds of um, practices we are used to, right? When we think about, um, and this is a global practice of getting a mortgage and how you get a house, you know, you have to get a loan and then you're given the keys to your house and you move into your house, your house is already built. And in, the, in Cancun's land redistribution program, the way it worked is that the government would expropriate land from um, local ejidos, which are communal land holdings that um, work the land and own the land collectively. And so then that land would then be carved up into plots small plots, um, 10 by 12 meters that would then residents could um, could then build their own house. So this is what's called self-built housing. So the government isn't involved in building the house. So the the local residents have to build their house. They have to bring in their own water. They have to bring in their own electricity. So it's all done, um, you know, as as people can afford to, to, to put all these things into place. And so, but what it was really interesting about Neda's Neda's experience is that, you know, in order to be able to get access to this land, because there are more residents than land available, she had to really get involved in local politics to do that. So what I, what I um, do is I follow her as she goes through and joins a grassroots organization that's lobbying for its uh, members to get access to land. And they argued that if the more uh, activity she was involved with on their behalf, then she would move up the list, the waiting list, um, because they had a lot of political power and clout and could, you know, move her up the list so she would get access to land. So she ended up going um Door to door, like leafleting. She ended up doing voter registration drives. Um, she would participate in political rallies, and through that kind of activism, she was then able to move her family up the list, and she was able to get her plot of land where she was able to build a house. And so that was a process before. So being able to get access to land in Cancun was not just like signing up and saying, "Okay, I want land." It really did. Inv- it does involve, um, you know, becoming involved in local political. Uh, uh, Practices, and in many ways, she talked about how it didn't make her um, because a lot of the the concerns are that these grassroots organizations have been bought by political parties, right? That's some of the the, the critiques of these organizations. And for her, she said this uh, being involved in these practices um, meant that she actually became a very much invested in advocating for herself and for her
2: family. So in this first chapter, you elaborate on the idea that state funding policies reify uh, certain gender relations. Can you give us a sense of how that played out?
0: Yeah. So part of the... the Nerida's example is a really good example of how that happens. So for, in order to gain access to land in Cancun, to these programs, you couldn't just be, for example, um, a young man. If you wanted to get access line, you couldn't participate in those programs. There were restrictions. You had to be married or um, in a common law marriage. You had to have children. And so it really did cater to a particular sector of of the working class um, uh, community, right? So if you were a young man or a young woman who was single, who was not, you know, uh, uh, who didn't reflect this heteronormative family, nuclear family, then you actually weren't eligible to get access to land. And so so really it did. Um, so the people who actually ha- own homes in Cancun have to fit this model. So whether you adhere to or not, you have to actually play this role. And so that's why I talk about how uh, housing policies um, or land policies during this time period were very much modeled on these gender ideologies that were rooted in the nuclear family. And it really was about this idea of what what kinds of citizens do we want to support? We want to support the citizens who are married. We want to support citizens who have families or single mothers who have families. They too are eligible, right? But it was really about creating um, a particular kind of citizenry um, in Cancun that they felt was the more that was going to create a more established community that was going it wasn't um, they weren't going to just like that they were actually going to settle you know stay that they're going to become a stable workforce because if you have a family you want to stay in cancun whereas if you're a young man or young woman and you know you get you you find that the work is not um, you lose your job or um, you find that you're given a job somewhere else you could just leave and go somewhere else right so the idea was to create, like the future, to like support the future residents of Kaim Kulin because you're supporting families, and so. But it meant that a lot of people who um, weren't eligible for those kinds of um, uh, programs then had to figure out other ways to gain access to land because they actually couldn't participate in um, in, for example, Invicro's land redistribution policy, which was Invicro was the organization that was distributing land for the local government at that time
2: what exactly is patrimony or patrimonio in Spanish? Why does it matter? Uh, What's the connection between patrimony and the neoliberal Mexican state and its push for social housing? In particular, I'm curious about the role President Fox plays or played here, uh, and then eventually what housing reform is. Uh,
0: Patrimony or patrimonio in Mexico is typically conceived as a shared bundle of rights to resources that is controlled by a collective or social group. Um, and so these resources are inalienable they cannot be sold. Um, people just have rights to work the land. And so a classic example of, of patrimonio is the ejido, which are communal land holdings. Um, and these in, in the ejido system, land is held collectively and it's worked the people the fa- uh, families have rights to work the land, but they can't and they, they can pass it down from generation to generation. This is why it's called a patrimonio, because it's a legacy um, and uh, and it's but it's a collective legacy. Right. That's managed collectively. So what pre- former President Fox uh, um does in order to promote what I call housing reforms, these are, you know, uh, shifts to the way that um, housing is administered uh, nationwide, um, is that he actually links housing reform with patrimonio. And he says, um, in a speech that he gave in Paseo Escaba, which was a social housing development in Cancun, he says that, um, you know, if you, he says, the patrimonio that you're going to the legacy that I'm going to give you is I'm going to actually give you access to a house. He promised to build $750,000, 750,000 homes, and provide 750,000 home loans. And he argued that this was the best way for people to, you know, this was the the new kind of legacy that families would give to their children. And so what and so it might not seem like a big deal. You know, we think of our homes also as our legacies, right? But what he was doing is he's, he's linking this idea of patrimonio that emerged out of the revolution, you know, emerged out of revolutionary mandates for land and liberty, um, and that were very much rooted in providing um, access to land for working class and indigenous peoples. And he linked that ideal, which was a national ideal, you know, Mexico had built Um, its sense of of, uh, national identity around these ideas of the revolution. And he linked those ideas, which are very popular, to housing reform by saying that, you know, in, in the current day, our patrimonio is no longer land, but it's the house. But what is a house in this context? A house is actually a mortgage. It's a loan. So a house is really debt. And so by linking Batrimonio to debt, he made it a palatable idea, right? So this is what he was trying to convince people that they no longer wanted land because they weren't going to be distributing land anymore. And they had to, um, you know, make that be okay, right? People had to stop wanting to actually get access to land, which was not the case. People still wanted access to land. But he had to make it palatable for them to then pivot and say, okay, instead of a demanding land from the government, we're going, to be de- we're going to demand a house. We're going to actually you know, um, purchase, uh, acquire a loan to purchase our home. What former President Fox was also trying to do is he was actually trying to move Mexico away from the ejido system of, of collective land holding and towards a what he called a property-owning democracy. And this was based on, on economist Hernando Soto's idea that um, the way for cap- uh, capitalism to thrive in Latin America is for people, individuals, to own property. And that once they own their own property, then they could capitalize it and stimulate the economy. And so he really bought into this idea and he wanted to move away from this idea of collective land ownership to individual land ownership. And so this, the, using the concept of patrimonio in this way was one way for him to be able to make that shift and to convince people to also, um, to think that this was a good idea.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: Well, and as you discuss in the book, this, this really matters because actually even now, still much of Mexico's land is in Ejido holdings. I'd like to ask you now about Fatima. Fatima. And what her story reveals about the lived experience of Maya. Mm-hmm. Women with microcredit. Speaking of debt, actually.
0: Yeah, I introduced Fatima because her story is a great example of how microcredit is gendered, and it also challenges the narrative that microcredit empowers women. But I'd like to take a step back and and return to former President Fox because former because Fox uh, was a big proponent of microcredit. He thought that microcredits were a way for, um, you know, to empower working class folks so they could become entrepreneurs so they could then, you know, um, uh, inv- uh, generate a lot of you know, economic activity. And they, he felt that this was one of the ways that he was going to pull people out of poverty. He had seen what had happened in Bangladesh, and he was so inspired by the fact that they were investing in their poor, right, and making it profitable. And so then he thought he wanted to bring this model to Mexico, and so this is where the the push to to expand microcredit began. And Fatima uh, and her sis her sister convinces her to join um, a to join a group of women who actually request a microcredit grant from this uh, this bank called Compartamos, and they then they and the, the The microcredit in this case is organized around, it's similar to what we call a tanda in Mexico, and this is a road trading credit association where you have a group of people who pull their money together every week, and they dole out um, that pot of money to one member, and and they do it, so for example, you have 10 members, you do it for 10 weeks, and so every week, Somebody gets that pot of money, and so it allows them to pull their resources so that instead of having you know 100 vessels that week, then you can have a thousand vessels, and then you can use that towards whatever needs you may have. And so, compartamos modeled their micro-credit microprogram- around this 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 idea of, of a tanda, and so they have they ha- so these women pull their resources together, and they at each week they would then um, get a, a pot of money that then they would then distribute amongst themselves and use it. And so what the bank did is they gave them the initial pot of money with the goal that not only would each week they each contribute to that pot of, to, um, to, you know, repay that pot of money, but that they would also then set aside some money to save that uh, uh, in addition to save that money um, along with that pot of money. So that when they finished with the program, not only would they have, um, uh, you know, been given that pot of money that they had all contributed towards, but they would also then have some savings on the side that they could use to invest in whatever business they were they had requested the funds for. And so Fatima participated in this um, uh, 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 microcredit with her, her sister and and neighbors. And the first time, um, it didn't always go well because one of the participants wasn't able to pay back her contribution. And so when a member drops out, then everybody else has to pitch in. So they ended up losing money. They didn't make as much money as they thought they were going to make. And, you know, so she her husband urges her not to do it again. But the second time she got invited, her brother wanted to um, use this as an opportunity to save some money. So he said, if you join the organization, then the money that you save on the set, I'll give it to you so you can save money. And then we can you know, have this savings through this this organ, this process. And so she did. She joined, but this time the treasurer absconded with um, a, a, a lot, three or four payments towards the end of the of the um, of of the project. And so what the group did when they got gathered together and they realized the money's this these funds were missing, is they decided then to take Fatima's money and use it to pay the difference because they didn't want to be at fault with the bank. And in both cases, the bank got paid. The people who had to take the losses were the people who were involved in the in the in in, in the group, and so she was very upset because she didn't she had been late to the meeting, and so when she showed up, they had basically used her funds, and she didn't know. And they said, you know, if you need the money back, you need to ask for that money from the treasurer who who absconded with the money, but the treasurer never paid her back, and she was very upset was because she felt like this was supposed to be a microcredit program that was supposed to empower women um it was supposed to be a group where they worked in solidarity with each other you know the name of the group compartamos is to share so they were supposed to support each other so that they could then you know gen you know uh, invest in in uh, whatever kinds of businesses that they were trying to develop uh, or or pay back whatever debts that they needed to pay and so she felt that the that the group had let her down and it really did destroy the social ties she had developed with it with these women so that it basically you know she and even with her own sister she was very upset by the fact that her sister um even though her sister didn't want to use that money she was outvoted and so her sister been had it didn't she didn't actually suffer an economic loss and so so she was very upset by that whole process because she felt that that she had um joined this this uh you know she'd requested a microcredit so that she'd get ahead and, but now she was behind. And so and it really made her wary of these kinds of programs and microcredit organizations around the world have been touted as supporting you know, poor women. And in this case, in Cancun, the microcredit organizations are actually targeting indigenous women. So they're supposed to empower indigenous women to become financially stable or to improve their financial circumstances. But in this case, what it did is it basically left her. Um, you know, it, it frayed her social relationships with her brother and her sister, and it also left her, um, you know, without the savings that she had set aside so that she could actually become more financially stable. And so that was a big challenge for her because she felt that that, you know, the, the idea of credit is touted as something that's good. It's going to give you opportunities because prior to 2000, uh, prior to 2001, there weren't a lot of credit opportunities for working class residents. And especially for women like Fatima, who don't have a job, she's a stay-at-home mom, and so so she actually can't go to a store at least prior to 2001. She couldn't go to a store and open up an account and get a credit so she could purchase anything from the store. She actually she had to rely on her husband who had a job. Her husband could open up an account and purchase like a computer or whatever he needed from the store, but she couldn't do that. And so what microcredit, um, the microcredit uh, industry is doing is it's making it possible for these women to have access to credit. But it's not necessarily the, uh, but because of the way it's structured, um, even though it's modeled after traditional practices like tandas, and what it's doing is is actually using the tanda as a way to make microcredit um, accessible or legible to the to local residents. But, but it doesn't actually account for the fact that it's relying on these social ties that are actually very weak, right? Because in Cancun everybody has to, you know, everything's very expensive. People can lose their jobs. It just, it's a tourism economy, so it fluctuates. And so you can't assume that everyone's going to be financially stable enough to pay or people just, you know, they just human nature, right? They just decide they just don't want to continue paying and, and they got their pot of money and they're done. And so then they exit the program, but then the rest of the people have to be responsible for it because otherwise then they're going to be you know, their credit is going to be deemed they won't be able to take out another credit. It might affect them. You know, they might actually have to, you know, use their collateral to cover the cost of of the debt. And so so that did really create the situation for her that was really devastating for her because she just didn't think that she had had a lot of faith in her in the people that she was. They were her friends. They were her neighbors. And for them to do that to her was really devastating.
2: Speaking of not paying, <laughs> I'd like to talk about resistance Um, in chapter four, you discuss Maria, uh, Mariela and Francisco. They are a Maya couple who are you, who are you, who you are close to, um, and who attempt to keep their house through a strategy of what you call waiting out the state and other actors uh, such as creditors. Can you explain the resistance and explain how we might conceive of foreclosure as a disciplinary act, as you argue in the book? Mm
0: -hmm. Mariela and Francisco um, were a couple um, who had purchased a home in Paseos Cabá, the housing development that Fox inaugurated. And um, they had been very excited about purchasing this home, but then they did not anticipate that they would actually end up having financial troubles when Francisco became sick and he wasn't able to then make, um, you know, his mortgage payments. What's interesting about their case is that, you know, these housing developments were constructed um, to and they were supposed to be affordable, but they weren't quite affordable for the working class. So the ways that when Fox instituted his reforms, what he, what um, the reforms included is that in the past, if you wanted to purchase a home, through what's called Infonavit, it's a housing workers fund that allows um, it. It requires all employers to um, allocate five percent of employees' wages towards a down payment of a house. Now, prior to 2000. Most working class residents, even though they were all enrolled in this program because it's a nationwide program, they actually couldn't purchase a home because they couldn't afford a home. So the, the number of points that they had accrued towards a down payment on a home were relatively small and the mortgage for a home for homes in Cancun were more expensive. And so with the development of tract housing, all of a sudden you had these affordable homes that local residents thought they could afford. But when they went to purchase these homes, they realized that they were just shy of the amount needed. But the housing reforms made it possible for now local residents to peg that, uh, you know, the Infonavit loan, mortgage loan, which was government subsidized and fixed with a subprime loan that was not fixed. That was pegged to the dollar. And so Mariela and Francisco did this. They purchased their home and then they purchased the the remaining of the amount, the home that was not covered by the Infonavit loan with a subprime loan. And at the time, they thought it would be okay because he had a good job. She, they were both employed full-time. They didn't have any kids, and they did not anticipate that he would become sick. And so when he became sick, he um, he was still working, but not as much as before. So he was still able to pay his InfoNavit loan because that was garnished from his wages, and it was a fixed interest rate, interest rate and it was a very small amount of money um, over a 10-year period. But the subprime loan because it was pegged to the dollar and he got sick around the time, you know, uh, close to the great recession when the recession happened and uh, the, the Mexican vessel just, you know, lost a lot of its value. Then it went from eight vessels to, you know, to double the amount. And so all of a sudden the loan ballooned. And so then it just made it impossible. He realized he couldn't pay back this loan. And then what complicated the matter is that the, the mortgage lender, Sukasita went into bankruptcy. And so their, their, um, those loans were bought out by another company and then, and then that, lo- that company ended up selling out those loans and then it was bought out by another company. So the local residents didn't know who they owed money to. So he decided, I'm not gonna pay, I'm just gonna wait, you know, hold out. And everyone, you know, he was told that if he didn't pay, he would actually be foreclosed on. And so Mariela and Francisco realized and said, you know, in the end, they didn't they didn't know if they would be able to hold out and be, I mean, they just imagined they, it would be impossible for them to pay, to pay back this ballooning loan. They were still paying back the Infonavit loan. They were still current with that loan because it was garnished from his wages, but the ballooning loan they weren't current with at all. And so, so they decided, well, we're just going to wait it out. And instead of, um, you know, thinking, you know, through foreclosure proceedings, the government was intent on either evicting residents or forcing them to become current with their loan. And so that's when I talk about um, foreclosure being a disciplinary practice is because it really is, um, you know, there is a a, a level of um, a coercion that happens, right? Because if you don't pay back your loan, then you're forcibly evicted. And you're, you know, the, the agents who would come and and tell people that you have to pay back their loan, you owe money to, to the company. They would come in and they would like bully p- local residents. Um, they would threaten them with bringing the police. They would bring the police on occasion. So people really felt threatened by this process. So that's why I talk about foreclosure being a disciplinary tactic because it forces people to um, actually you know, abide by these and pay these ballooning loans or then it, it, it forces people out of their homes. And so it's a a very kind of violent process. And so so Mariano Francisco realized instead of, you know, abandoning their home, which is what they were people were telling them to do, because they said, you can't pay. So you have to leave. Um, We're going to foreclose on you. They decided to wait it out. And they said they played a waiting game with the government. And they said, we're just going to wait. We figure we have about 10 years because in Mexico, you just can't force people out, even if they're deemed as squatters, there's a legal process by which you have to go through the courts. And so they thought, you know, we, ha- we figure we have about 10 years before the government can come in and force us out. And in that process, we're going to wait it out. And we're going to, we hope that during that time period, we can figure out a way to legally challenge these foreclosures because we're current with one loan, but not current with the other. We still have stakes in one loan, and they were hoping to pressure the government because it was a government loan to negotiate with the mortgage company to allow them to continue to stay in their home. And so that's what why I talk about them waiting it out. Normally, people talk about um, like Javier Oyero, the sociologist, talks about waiting as a way for governments to create um, subordinate subjects because because people have to wait in line, you know, to receive government handouts. If they have to wait in line to get, you know, you have to wait in line to get land. Uh, allocated to you by the government, and so this process creates subordinate subjects. And so what Mariela and Francisco do by waiting it out is they actually take that um, an act of subordination and they convert it into an act of political insubordination because they're trying to subvert government practices. They're cr- trying to subvert capital by saying, you know, we're gonna we recognize that we have um, we can use time as a way for us to gain a foothold in this process, or at least figure out another solution to our housing dilemma.
2: You explain that in being treated like urban residents, Maya migrants are deracialized. And you propose the term indigenous urbanism. Here I'm quoting you, once indigenous people move to cities like Cancun, they are no longer perceived to be indigenous. And so I'm wondering what are the consequences of this shift broadly and how does it relate to changing conceptions of land?
0: Well, indigenous pueblos in Mexico have rights and um, they also have rights to, um, and these rights include the rights to resources and to support, um, you know, by the government. And so when they move to cities, they aren't given access to these rights and so that's why I say they're treated as de racial subjects, because their indigeneity or, the, or their identity as, you know, or membership in an indigenous pueblo is not recognized in Cancun. Um, even though they have not, they they still remain members of this pueblo, but it's not translated as, you know, as a recognizable um, uh, way of dealing with the government, right? And so they're just treated like any other citizen. And so that's part of the reason why I say that they're, Deracialized. Um, and in terms of consequences uh, in relation to land, um, what this means is that because Indigenous peoples have rights in the countryside, they also have a lot of autonomy about the way they manage their land, about the relationship, you know, the, the kinds of um, relationships they have with the government, uh, the kinds of uh, requests that they can make to the government. Like they're given, you know, health care, they're given, you um, uh, uh, education, they're given you know they're also uh, their land rights are protected and supported. Um, and when they go to to cities, they don't have access to these rights. So all of a sudden their relationship to land is not based on collective land holding system. It's based on this idea of individual property rights. And individual property rights are not vested or or do not take into account, indigenous relationships to land i mean land for indigenous for maya communities land is not seen as just this way this um it's not seen as an investment land is is a it's you know it's, it's it's a it's a it's a way for them it's seen as as a way for them to have autonomy from the state because land gives them rights it's seen as part of you know their ecosystem it's seen you know of, of, of a, of a that, you know, they're, they're, it's a, it's part of, uh, they're part of an ecosystem. It's seen as part, you know, it's seen in relationship to their own understanding of the cosmos. It's seen as it's seen as part of, you know, religious practices. And so land itself has a lot of um, multiple, uh, 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 multiple connections, right? And so when you go to the city then, and you're negotiating for uh, access to land, then, the city governments actually don't account for those relationships. They don't take that into account at all. And what they're basically saying is we don't, you know, we're they dismiss those relationships altogether. The only thing that's recognized is their right as residents of Cancun, as settlers, right? Because they're positioned as settlers, their rights as settlers to request access to land or to participate in Infonavit and request access to a loan. And so that's the challenge of, um, of this, the way that indigenous Pueblos are, um, cons- are uh, articulated or conceived of in Mexico is that they're very much gr- uh, 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 relegated to particular geographic spaces. And they're not um, allowed, I mean, and they don't account for diasporas. And they don't account for the fact that, you know, people move, but they still retain membership. So the people in Cancun are still members of the community of Cuchimil. But that membership is only valid when they're in Kuchmiel. That membership isn't recognized in the city.
2: Well, I think I have taken up enough of your time today. Thank you for the book. It's uh, What's amazing about your book is that these interlocutors that we have discussed and we've named thus far constitute only a small fraction of the characters that you talk about in your book. There is a, a richness to your description and analysis that I appreciated while Weeding. And I highly encourage our listeners to pick up a copy wherever they might be able to get one. One last question for you. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you are working on these days?
0: Well, I have a couple of projects. I am working on... Um, uh, I'm working on an essay on Maya music, um, and thinking about its relationship to Maya diasporas in, um, in California, but also within the peninsula, there's a really, uh, really rich, robust group of Maya rappers who, um, uh, who live in, in small communities in, in Yucatan. And so I'm looking at their relationship to, um, To land through RAP and through, uh, and we're also linking it to Corridos. So that's one project. But then my next book project is actually thinking about settler colonialism, because one of the things about this book that I, uh, um, on Cancun is I'm really, it took me a long time to figure out how to think about Cancun as a city, as a, you know, as a tourist center. So I started off thinking about it as a tourist center. I started thinking about it as a this sort of metropolitan city. And what Southern colonialism allowed me to do is to really think of, to begin with Cancun, thinking of Cancun as an indigenous space. And if we begin with that premise that, that Cancun is an indigenous space, then how doesn't that change the way we think about the city, the way we think about the way the city has been planned, the way it's been imagined, the way it's going to be um, reconfigured for the future? Um, so if we begin with that premise, I think it really allows for a new understanding of, of thinking about the city in relationship to global economies and tourism that was, you know, the, the indigenous component was missing before. And so so now I'm taking this idea of settler colonialism and thinking through my own family history. My I've, I was born in the state of Colima. And so I'm looking at Colima and set of colonial practices in Colima in relationship to the Hacienda economies that dominated the state for a very long time. And thinking about how the, that the Haciendas ended up erasing um, uh, Afro-Mestizo communities and also indigenous communities. And then thinking about the alliances that have been forged between Nahua Pueblos and Afro-Mestizo communities in my own family. And so that's my next project.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you again, uh, Bianet Castellanos. Uh, your book is Indigenous Dispossession, Housing and Maya Indigeneity in Mexico. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and I am honored to uh, have done so. Thank you. And uh, goodbye. We'll see you next time.
0: Thank you very much, Joel.